You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 34, Personality Disorders. What many of our audience may not know is that uh, while I am a neuroscience professor, I actually have a PhD in psychology, and my undergraduate training was also in psychology. And while I was an undergraduate student, I took a lot of courses on the diverse topics within the field of psychology, including personality disorders, which were always fascinating to me. And yet in neuroscience, we don't really address personality disorders too much. And this is something that uh, I'm really lucky. We're lucky today to have our guest joining us live in the studio. Just kidding. We're not live and we're not in a studio, but who we have here today is Dr. Pete Kelly. And he is a clinical registered clinical psychologist at the Ottawa Institute for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. He's also a graduate and alumnus of Carleton University and, in fact, our department. He did his PhD with Dr. Jaime Anisman. And he also has his own podcast called Thoughts on Record. So we're going to shout that out at the end and we're going to provide some great links for all of you on our MindingTheBrainPodcast.com website so you can follow along with him because he's got a lot of really awesome things to say. So today, we're going to talk about personality disorders because they're interesting and I don't really know a lot about them beyond what I learned in my undergraduate. So uh, welcome, Pete. How are you doing today? Ken, thanks so much for uh, having me. I'm doing great, thanks. So um, just to get our listeners a little bit more attuned into the general topic of personality disorders, can you describe for our audience a little bit on what exactly are personality disorders? Sure thing. So, and we can get a bit more specific as we go along, but generally speaking, when we talk about a personality disorder, we're talking about uh, cases where people come in where they're, they're experiencing like long-standing, a per- long-standing pervasive pattern of interpersonal dysfunction that's related to their sense of self, their ability to reality test situations, their ability to reason effectively through situations, again, especially those of an interpersonal nature. And there's very often frequently a, a difficulty with respect to regulating a emotions and impulsivity. Uh, If you look in the DSM, they talk about three different uh, clusters of personality disorders. We have cluster A, which are sort of the otter and centric. This would be like your paranoid personality disorder. There's the cluster B personality disorders, which are characterized by uh, sort of more emotional or dramatic presentations. These would be your narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder. And finally, you have cluster C, which is characterized by more anxious, fearful, or depressive kinds of presentations. This would be your obsessive compulsive personality disorder or avoidant personality disorder. So for our listeners, just a reminder that the DSM or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders is the primary, it's called the the sort of the Bible of um, psychology, which clinicians use uh, in order to diagnose a variety of mental health disorders, including, you know, typical things like depression and anxiety, but personality disorders are also included within the DSM. And so I did, so my understanding then is personality disorders, it's, it's, this is why they're like, they're stable things that are not typically uh, treated with um, medications that affect brain circuitry, which is probably why we don't really talk about them so much in neuroscience, but they're kind of extreme variations on um, already existing personality traits. Is that kind of a good way of looking at it? Yeah, affect your interpersonal 
interactions. That's, that's kind of the big. Exactly. When I'm speaking about it with a client, the way I, I talk about it is that, you know, our personality exists along a number of different dimensions. And what evolution is going to do is going to select for right up until the edge of uh, functionality. And so it will take it right up to that edge. But then what's going to happen inevitably, inevitably with some folks is that those traits are going to be a, a bit too extreme and they'll sort of fall off the edge of that uh, of that cliff, as, if you will. And so what happens in these personality disorders is that they are extensions of what are normal variations within the population of different kinds of traits. And when you get to the extremes of these traits, it tends to cause problems for folks. So how are personality disorders typically diagnosed? Okay, so, you know, Kim, there's a lot of complexity around this. And what I'd like to do for the listener just is just back up a little bit and maybe explain some of the conundrums that we face as clinicians with respect to diagnosis and some of the things that we have to think through. So one thing I'd like to do is to invite all the listeners to pick up the book, Saving Normal by Dr. Alan Francis. He, he gives a really good overview of the development of the DSM. And in fact, he helped chair DSM-4. He's been a very sort of vocal critic of DSM-5. And he talks about the influence of pharma on diagnostic processes and, and, and practices and then how we've really had a lot of sort of diagnostic creep and inflation over time. So for anyone who's interested in mental health or the diagnostic process, that's a really, really interesting book for them to check out. One thing we know about the DSM is that it is often more reliable than it is valid. And I think the personality disorders give a, are really emblematic of this where you know, if you look at major personality theories, they don't really map onto the way that personality is described in the DSM. So we can reliably diagnose someone with paranoid personality disorder or, or borderline personality disorder. You know, that, that construct, those constructs are reliable, but they're, what do they mean? If there's no sense that they mm. actually map onto, uh, you know, the, the theories of personality. So I think the listener just needs to be attuned to that. And again, like I was mentioning before, <laughs> We tend to think, or I tend to think as a clinician, about personality as, as falling along a continuum of which there's a number of dimensions. And so we've arbitrarily draw these lines in the sand and say, hey, if you're extreme enough on these traits, we're going to call it a diag we're going to say that you have a diagnosis versus if you're on the other side of that line, you know, we're going to say that's within a normal range. The listener needs to know those are completely arbitrary lines, right? There is a, you know, a bunch of clinicians sitting in a room who decided that that's where it would be. There's nothing scientific about that uh, per se. So with those caveats yeah. in mind, what we usually do is when someone comes into the office, uh, I will do a clinical interview with them when I, where I, talk, I assess their family of origin, what their current presenting problem is. I might give them some measures. I want to know about what symptoms are going on for them now. I want to get a sense of what their relationships are like, and, and especially their romantic relationships. Those are often very telling. And then what I'll do from there is I'll often, there's a, a specific tool that we can use to assess personality issues called the SCID-2. And um, uh, what the beauty of the SCID too is that it maps onto the DSM criteria, you know, very exactly for all the different personality di diagnoses. And in order for someone to have a diagnosis of a personality disorder, we're looking at the following. So there's got to be a persistent, inflexible, pervasive pattern of maladaptive traits involving at least two or more of the following areas. So the way that they think, the way they perceive others emotion regulation, interpersonal functioning, and impulse control. It's also got to cause significant distress or impair their functioning, uh, you know, resulting from the maladaptive patterns that they engage in. 
as you alluded to before, Kim, it's got to be relatively stable and have an early onset where you start to see these traits emerging in, in, in at least adolescence or early adulthood. And you got to be careful here, right? Because a lot of folks, when they come in and they're really quite ill, if say someone's really depressed, they can look as if they, as though mm. they have a personality disorder, but they really don't. So we like to take as as much of a longitudinal view of the client as we can. So, you know, watching, waiting, looking at them over time, that often is way more telling than that initial assessment session. And the last thing I'll just add is that, you know, we really need to be aware of the potential influence of medical factors, right? So if someone has a sudden change in their personality, that could be indicative of an end endocrine problem, like a problem with respect to hormones. It could be a problem with respect to brain functioning. They could have a tumor in a specific area. And of course, if people are using substances, you know, if someone's, someone's been an, uh, a regular cocaine user for six months, that's going to cause changes in their personality that could end up looking reminiscent of a personality disorder, but may not actually be. So, you know, that's a little bit of a tour through the diagnostic piece, but that's what we go through in, in with respect to, that's the process we go through with respect to coming up with a diagnosis or not. Well, I, yeah, I appreciate that newer, nuanced perspective. And I, I, I'm just curious to know if, you know, you, you talked about how the, the, the diagnosis being um, reliable, but not necessarily valid. Would you, are you saying that specifically about personality disorders or are you talking about that about most of the psychiatric disorders full stop? That appears to be the case for most of the psychiatric disorders. And I think this is best illustrated with respect to uh, comorbidity. So, you know, for instance, is depression with OCD the same as just depression? You know, we don't really know. So we have arbitrarily carved up profiles of symptoms that co-occur with one another and call them disorders when in fact they, co they, they occur with one another all the time. Mm. And so we don't really have a good way of thinking through that. So I think what, you know, that my message to my trainees when I'm supervising people clinically is to think of the DSM or ICD um, diagnostic frameworks as guidelines, but not like sort of the Bible truth. Uh, right. They're, they're mm. not they're not revealing truths about mental illness. They are frameworks that we use as clinicians to understand patterns of symptoms. They are reliable, but don't necessarily tell us about the truth of the manifestation of uh, mental illness. And even getting into what is mental illness is a whole whole other podcast. But I'll leave it at that for now. Well, that's totally fine. But I, I'm, I, I'm going to take up take it up a little bit further. Like, are, are you a fan of the RDOX model? the research domain criteria that's been uh, um, proposed by NIH. Um, you Are you know, familiar can, with the RDOX? I, I actually, no, I'm not familiar with it. No. Well, no. Yeah. Well, it's just so, yeah, and I'm sure our, our listeners aren't either. The RDOX uh, or research domain criteria suggests that mental illness, uh, the way we should approach it is not necessarily by a diagnosis, but by uh, f the sort of cluster of um, underlying circuitry that lead to a specific symptom. So, for example, impulsivity uh, is a feature of many different mental health disorders, but, um, and, but it, it tends to be governed by, you know, frontal striatal circuitry. Um, feeling like paranoia, right? So uh, they their suggestion is that we need to treat the the these different symptoms as opposed to the disorder, which as I think you're kind of alluding to is that you're seeing all these overlapping um, diagnoses, right? Like right. you know, anxiety and depression are often comorbid. Well, maybe are they the same thing? Kind of, it's just. 
you know, I don't know. No, that, that model really resonates and it, and it maps yeah. onto a way that we treat anxiety disorders with a trans diagnostic or unified protocol where we, we don't even worry about whether it's OCD versus social anxiety versus uh, generalized mm. anxiety disorder. What we're looking at are the profile of symptoms and safety behaviors and treating them pretty much the same. Like it's sort of an all roads lead to Rome right. um, sort of right. sort of idea, right? The I'll just add in one little thought, like one of the problems that, you know, that we've encountered in terms of finding biomarkers for disorders is that if we are using the diagnostic frameworks to find biomarkers, then why do we need the biomarkers, right? Like it, 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 mm. it becomes like mm. a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. So they, they, yeah. di- they just end up resonating and becoming sort of an echo chamber with one another. So that's always been the problem of you know, using these diagnostic frameworks to dig into the brain is that it all you discover is that they end up confirming themselves because that's how you're looking at them, right? So yeah, it, yeah. It's, a, it's a really interesting conundrum. It's the snake eating its tail. You, you got it. You got it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's focus in now. I appreciate that conversation about diagnosis. And this is why the clinicians need to talk to the scientists. Um, and Absolutely. It's, it's, it, we need to, to have spaces to engage in these kinds of critical conversations. But for today, uh, I'd like us to focus in on a specific personality disorder, and that is borderline personality disorder. And I've, I've selected this today because um, just from my own personal experience, I, uh, I have heard that it is increasingly common amongst uh, university students. So, you know, me being a university professor and, and engaging with my students, I like to know who my population are. So I'm wanting to dig in a little further and find out a little bit more about borderline personality disorder. So can you describe a little bit about uh, what exactly is the, the features of borderline personality disorder? Absolutely. And I'll just add that I'm really glad that we're talking about borderline personality disorder as well. It's one of the most stigmatized diagnoses out there. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll dig into all this, but I think this is such a lovely opportunity to be able to sort of separate fact from fiction around borderline personality disorder and also to really craft a compassionate narrative around understanding how it comes to pass and then how it's treated and then, you know, some of the challenges that our clients with borderline personality disorder face. So I'm sure we'll get to all that, but, you know, I'll I'll sort of quote the DSM here. Uh, Borderline personality disorder is a pervasive pattern of instability in interpersonal relationships, self-image and emotion, as well as marked impulsivity beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts. And so as a clinician, what we're looking for is five or more of the following features of the, of the client. So number one would be chronic features, uh, excuse me, chronic feelings of emptiness. There might also be emotional instability in reaction to day-to-day events. So you might get really intense episodic sadness, irritability, or anxiety. It can last a few hours. It might last up to a few days at most. There's often frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment, especially by people, uh, by loved ones or people that they're in a relationship with. There's frequently identity disturbance with markedly or persistently unstable self-image or a sense of self. We frequently see impulsive behavior in in many areas, such as uh, spending, sexual activity, substance abuse, driving, binge eating, things like that. There's often inappropriate, intense anger or difficulty controlling anger. 
uh, tempered, uh, almost like temper tantrums or sometimes getting in physical fights. There can often be a pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by extremes of, this is a very well-worn pattern of idealization and then devaluation. And sometimes this, this can happen within relationships. Sometimes it happens across relationships. This can be known as splitting where sometimes uh, you'll see this in more inpatient settings where the client will end up playing two clinicians off one another. Uh, in, in very complex ways. Uh, there can also be recurrent suicidal behavior, gestures or threats or self-harming behavior like uh, cutting, punching, things like that. And finally, in, in more severe manis- manifestations, there can be uh, transient stress-related paranoid ideation or even dissociative kinds of symptoms. So, you know, again, those are the DSM criteria and those do really map on to what we see clinically uh, in, in, this, in these cases. So it, I wouldn't mind just um, unpacking, like, so you say chronic feelings of emptiness is one of the, the one, one, one of the symptoms that can be observed. Can you explain for us, like, what might a client describe that feeling like? like sure. Do they it, just it, feel sad? Like, how do you feel empty? It's it's a little different than sad than it's it's almost like a combination, you know, when clients describe it as sort of like a, a combination of numbness and sadness together, if, if that makes sense, where there's mm-hmm. just there's just this there's not a sense of being filled up or having a sense of self that one could fill up. It's like, who, mm-hmm. who am I? What's my point? Uh, I don't I don't have any connection to anybody. Just really not p- feeling filled up. And I know that's just saying the opposite of emptiness, but that's what yeah. clients will describe, right? Like they have an inability to feel filled up or enriched by connections that they have uh, with with things that they encounter throughout the day. There's a lack of pleasure and just not feeling um, that, that things are resonating or that they're able to connect to those experiences that they would like to have. And then I just, so my understanding of BPD, um, which I use as a short form, by the way, BPD, sure. whereas some people actually use that for bipolar disorder, which is confusing to me, which it is, is. What it, out of, <laughs> which one is the common, is there an agreed upon BPD? <laughs> So is it borderline or is it bipolar? Typically, when we say BPD, we mean borderline. But you're absolutely gotcha. right. Uh, yeah. b- uh, borderline, sorry, excuse me, uh, bipolar disorder also has that same acronym. But uh, BPD in my world is synonymous with borderline. Gotcha. Okay. So we're going to use BPD today. So um, my understanding of BPD is it's this this recurrent pattern. They often very intense relationships where they almost put up uh, like either a romantic partner or a friend up on a pedestal where they want to spend a lot of time with that person and they really idealize them and it can be really, really, really good. And then um, if that individual doesn't answer a phone call or doesn't, um, wants to see another friend or wants to spend time with uh, somebody else, then they feel this like threat of abandonment or fear of abandonment. And I think, is this what you're referring to with the idealization and devaluation where they suddenly will sort of switch and, and get really, really angry with that one loved one or, or friend? Is, is that my correct understanding of what is commonly observed? No, you absolutely, you you got it bang on. And as clinicians, we see this as well, right? So clients will, will come in and, you know, you'll form that therapeutic relationship with them. 
And then what will happen sometimes over time is that they will start to idealize you in terms of being uh, sort of the ultimate caregiver for them, right? Like that you were able to soothe them and to help alleviate their pain. And then inevitably, because we're human beings, we're going to disappoint, right? We'll like, we'll be a few Mm. minutes late starting a session or we'll Mm -hmm. have to cancel a session. Or, you know, sometimes we even have to terminate our work with people because the nature of our own professional engagements change, right? Like we wouldn't be downsizing our practice or, or whatnot. And then what will happen is that the client you know, will quickly uh, flip and, you know, all of a sudden you're the worst person in the world and you, and you don't care and you're not empathic and you're all about yourself and, and things like that. Right. And, and again, as the, as the clinician, your job is to remember the place that that's coming from and to understand that that's someone who's uh, almost undoubtedly experienced a lot of attachment injuries and trauma and is, is exquisitely sensitive to having uh, to experiencing ruptures in their relationship uh, which, you know, especially as a child is really quite dangerous. So they're acting out sort of childhood patterns in this adult relationship that they have with you. And of course, people in their lives who are not clinicians and, who, you know, who, who don't have the same fiduciary, you know, responsibility in, the, in that relationship are just going to walk away, right? They're going to get fed up and mm-hmm. say, this, this is mm-hmm. nonsense. I don't want to deal with this. Yeah. Um, and that this is why therapy can be so powerful because it's an opportunity to, repair ruptures in the alliance and allow the person to see that there's a different way that they can get their needs met and they don't have to resort to brinkmanship in order to, or extreme behaviors or outbursts in order to get their needs met. Thank thank you. And I, I do so appreciate this compassionate narrative that you're, you're, you're driving today. And um, I know we'll pick that up later when we talk about treatment, but I think it's really important, especially as we do see these patterns of um, behaviors potentially in university settings, you know, even professor and student relationships or even student-student relationships. I think what you're providing to our listeners today is really that awesome opportunity to be, to educate and to learn more um, on this topic. So thank you for that. So I just, you know, we did talk about the challenges of diagnosis and what that means in in the greater context of personality disorders and and psychiatry in general and psychology in general. How how do you reach a diagnosis of BPD? Yes, it requires careful attention, uh, especially because a lot of the clients that we get referred our way are very young, right? So we'll often have... Uh, it's typically young women just because borderline tends to present with a ratio of about three to one in clinical populations. There's a lot of data to suggest that it's about actually even in the population, but clinically we tend to see uh, it present predominantly in females and a lot of times at very young age, you know, 18 uh, 18, 19, things like that. So there's, there's a lot, it, I'll, I'll get to this nuance in a moment, but, um, when someone comes in the door, uh, presenting with borderline traits, let's say at, at that point, we need to think about things like, is there complex PTSD going on? Uh, often we need to rule out things like ADHD, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder that can look incredibly similar to borderline under some circumstances. We also have to look at the potential for bipolar two, which is a less severe manifestation of bipolar one, which, you know, people might know as manic depression. Uh, that's, that's an older term. We don't use that anymore, but you know, bipolar one, typically what will happen is the person will oscillate between periods of depression and mania where there can be almost psychotic symptoms. Uh, so, you know, th- th- there's a, and, and of course, then on, t- and of course, someone can have those diagnoses and have borderline personality disorder, right? There's nothing to say that if you have bipolar two, then, then you can't have borderline. You can have both, right? So it, it can get sort of uh, complex. 
And again, we use the same tools. Um, we use the skid or the skid two, excuse me, and uh, really rely on a really solid clinical history, a good clinical interview. And especially if I'm assessing borderline, I will really want to pay a lot of attention to the person's interpersonal relationships and get them to describe the patterns that have played out in their relationships. It's a little bit easier the older the client is because, of course, they have a greater track record of being in romantic relationships or they may be in a longstanding marriage and we can really get a sense. But, you know, a very common situation is we have we'll have a young woman come in. Uh, who's recently experienced the breakup of a major relationship, maybe has had a suicide attempt or some cutting or self-harm. It looks and feels a lot like borderline. But again, can someone truly have a personality disorder at the age of 18? The brain isn't even fully developed at that point. There's a lot of tempering and, and hardening and and development of the prefrontal cortex that's going to happen in the next uh, decade or so. Right. So, you know, you have to proceed with a lot of caution, especially when a uh, when a young client comes in in terms of communicating the diagnosis. You know, um, it's it's not as tricky as some may believe, as long as it's done with a lot of empathy and compassion. I like to emphasize that I don't like the, the, the label myself, but that it's a tool that we use clinically. I like to talk about it more in terms of uh, a pro, an adaptive profile of coping for managing certain types of situations. And we can talk about that uh perhaps a little bit later. But again, as a clinician, I'm really mindful that especially with borderline personality disorder, you know, diagnoses can stay with people for a long time. It Once it shows up on somebody's chart, it tends to follow them all the way through. And what it can do is sully attempts for them to get help. It can also engender sort of an eye rolling routine if they do end up presenting at the hospital for a psychiatric emergency. It's like, oh, it's just borderline, right? And they, they, mm. they, they get a Seroquel mm. thrown at them and, and basically mm. come back when you're really serious about harming yourself. I mean, I'm, I'm being a little bit glib in terms of describing that, but that's not an entirely uncommon experience for our clients with borderline. Yeah, and that speaks to the stigma, as you say, uh, that you, you you brought up in your introduction of this, is that borderline personality disorder can be highly stigmatized um, because it is seen as something that is, you know, like you say, it's almost like the histrionic um personality disorder is that even a term anymore but it's yep. just it, yeah, it you know, it's like that sort of like freudian oh the wandering room here we go here's another woman um just cry you know like not crying out for help you know what i mean like it's 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 kind of downplayed because i think a lot of it as you say even though it's three to one females in clinical populations shockingly i thought it was more skewed female in general in the general population, but you're saying it's more even, but I, 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 you know, I'm wondering if there's some gendered stuff here that contribute to the stigma, but certainly I've heard from, from folks that it is, you know, one of the most difficult diagnoses to receive and to also, um, treat. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that we're going to have this conversation here that that's not necessarily the case. No, absolutely. And I'll throw in just a little thought on the gendered piece. Again, we know that women, uh, well, this this will be a shock to no one. Uh, men typically don't like to get help or be vulnerable or, or go to the doctor. <laughs> what? I know, I know. Big rev- revelations here. Um, but, you know, we, we do know that women will be more proactive around seeking help uh, with respect to their health and, and mental health. So, yeah, we do see it that it presents more... Uh, more of our borderline clients are, are female 
Um, but you know, the, again, the data suggests if you go into the general population, you will, you will see an even distribution. The same thing, by the way, is true of major depressive disorder, just for example, where most of the people who present clinically are women at a, a ratio of two to one. But if you factor in alcoholism and anger problems, you you know, which mm. is typically the male manifestation of depression, you'll see mm-hmm. that the, the di- distribution is just about equal. So I mm-hmm. have a suspicion, I believe there's data to back this up, that you know, the, the distributions for these things are equal. We just have sort of have stereotyped mapping of the ways that these things present and we map them onto our expectations of, of uh, gender, let's say. I, I would agree with you 100%. I think there are probably ways in which males might manifest borderline quite differently than females. Um, and we just, it's either that we haven't looked at it in that way, or, the, you know, like you said, there's probably data there. It's just not as well um, characterized as what we see with the female populations. Uh, absolutely. So in, in male populations, you would see, you know, a lot of uh, addictions or sexualized behaviors, uh, maybe mm-hmm. getting in fights, you know, you know, and it's, it's complicated because a lot of, you know, you have the antisocial personality disorder, mm. which, you know, 80% of the prison population would have, and which is majority male, right? So we tend, mm-hmm. th- there is some notion that antisocial personality disorder is a prototypically male manifestation of antisocial behavior and that borderline personality disorder is is a prototypically female manifestation of some some of those same antisocial traits. Uh, I, I'm just not the sure. I'm, I think that's what we detect as more saliently, but I don't believe the data actually backs that up. Yeah, I would imagine if you're seeing fear to, of abandonment in a male, it might be like threatening. Like you might even see that in, in domestic violence and abuse, like threatening to harm a woman if she leaves him. You know, whereas a woman, you know, like it, uh, it might be the, the flip of like, I can't believe you're leaving me. I'm going to hurt myself versus a man saying you can't leave. I'll hurt you. Exactly. When we know when men feel shame and vulnerable, uh, that they tend to react with grandiosity and anger, whereas women will tend mm-hmm. to become sad. Uh, yeah. Right. And, and again, mm-hmm. those are very broad strokes, but those are the trends. Mm-hmm. Right. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, this is one of the problems with detecting male depression is that, it, again, it tends to manifest with alcohol abuse, uh, anger, irritability, shutdownness. It doesn't map on to that prototypically sort of sad, uh, despondent, mm-hmm. despair yep. filled kind of presentation. Melancholic. Mm-hmm. E- exactly. Mm-hmm. You, you got it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. We need more on gendered diagnoses um all right so back to bpd um i have heard that it's there are some things that are quite common uh that occur concurrently with borderline personality disorders so for those of you in the audience that are listening in um we talk a lot about concurrent diagnoses in psychiatry and psychology meaning that it's you know two diagnoses that tend to occur uh similar at at the same time and we kind of were talking about that at the beginning of our of our podcast. And so what I've heard with BPD is that it's common to see self-harm or cutting, as it might be more colloquial, colloquially known. Um, can you comment on that as well? No, for sure. So, yes, uh, self-harm is always a concern in the context of borderline personality disorder. Very high rates, as, as with suicidality. Right. So when you have a client with borderline personality disorder, you're almost, you know, certainly going to be having an ongoing ethos of risk assessment, right? Where every session just sort of checking in. There's often mm-hmm. a safety plan that you would have in place. Uh, dialectical behavior therapy or DBT, which we may, may talk a little bit about later. Really, its number one goal is the safety of the client. So a lot of the strategies that are embedded within DBT 
are oriented towards keeping the client safe. Other things that show up with BPD from a clinician's perspective and that you typically would want to check in on are things like substance use. Eating disorders are also very, um, uh, very common. Major depressive disorder, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, ADHD, or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, those are some of the uh, diagnoses that, all, that show up. Also, sometimes concurrent personality disorders, right? So someone may meet diagnostic criteria for uh, not just one personality disorder, but uh, two or three at the same time. Now, that, that's rare, but it, uh, it can happen. More commonly, what you'd see, someone has borderline personality disorder, but they may also have, let's say, narcissistic traits, or they might have histrionic traits, not the full-blown disorder, but they have elements of their personality, which are also extreme, but do not map onto a singular diagnostic entity. Wow. Um, I did not know that. Thank you. So um, now I want to get into more really on what is the cause, right? And and I want to preface this by saying I struggle with understanding etiology, which is the fancy word for saying cause of a disorder in the context of personality disorders, because for me as a neuroscientist, I'm always looking at sort of biological causes, right? And I know like I, I obviously take a very biopsychosocial approach to understanding mental illness, but for me, I, you know, I hope you can understand and grasp the nuance of this is, is is like where in the brain right. <laughs> is a personality, you know? So I'm really, really uh, fascinated to hear what, you know, your comments on what are the root causes of borderline personality. Um, please nope. do let us know are there predisposing factors. Um, I've heard attachment is, is a key piece here. So uh, yes, take it away. There's so much to say about this. And just to level set for the audience, personality tends to be sort of a 50-50 mix of your temperament combined with experiences within the environment. Uh, so yes, there's some degree to which personality is inherited, but it's not completely determined by your genes. And I would also say that there's no borderline personality disorder gene. There's no narcissistic personality disorder gene. And in fact, gene studies with respect to mental health in general have not been terribly fruitful with respect to yielding any sort of biomarkers or letting us know, uh, you know, where these things come from a brain perspective. Um, there's a couple for, okay, so I'll start with the lens of lens of a psychologist in terms of thinking about borderline personality disorder. Uh, Marsha Linehan, who developed dialectical behavior therapy, she talks a lot about the interaction between an at-risk temperament, that is a, a temperament where the infant or child may be really reactive, uh, just, uh, you know, from a physiological perspective, this may activate certain responses in the, in the parent, right? Uh, in combination with an invalidating environment. And she talks about how this, when this at-risk temperament occurs in an invalidating environment, the child doesn't get a chance to learn emotion re uh, regulation. In fact, becomes emotionally dysregulated and resorts to extremes in order to get its needs met. Pause there for a second. What do you, What is an invalidating environment? So an invalidating environment would be where there's a lot of neglect or, the, the, you know, to put it in sort of layman's terms, the child isn't seen or heard, right? So the, mm, the, mm -hmm. the parent isn't intuitively picking up on what's going on with the child and they don't hear the child when the child expresses a need of some kind. And so again, mm -hmm. what, what happens is the child has to escalate and escalate and escalate their attempts to get their needs met. And so then you get that kind of a dysregulated mm -hmm. kind of profile developing over time. Does that make sense? Uh, yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the cl 
clinically the model that I use to understand borderline personality disorder, especially when I'm delivering psychoeducation to clients and especially in the early sessions is Jeffrey Young's schema model. That's, that's a model that really resonates with me. So I'd like to walk the listener to, through this because I think it's, it's really, really fascinating. So what are schemas? Schemas are core beliefs about the self world and other people that we develop in order to quickly navigate problems or threats that we encounter in early adulthood. Uh, schemas are usually uh, precipitated by the inf influence of parents and the kind of attachment that we have with them. But, you know, really, cer certainly siblings and peers matter quite a bit as well. You can think of schemas as shortcuts, right? They contain really quick access to instructions with respect to cognitive, behavioral and emotional protocols that we, we should use when we encounter a stressful event of some kind. There's, uh, to my knowledge, there's about 18 of these what's called maladaptive core beliefs that we have. Most people have between one and three. Uh, what wow. You, yeah, the, no one no one is exposed to perfect parenting. No. Yeah. What? <laughs> exactly. I'm not a perfect parent? Come on. <laughs> so, you know, one, one that would be common maybe in this audience of students or, or academics would be, there's one called unrelenting standards hypercriticalness, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're, 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 you must get an A. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, right? So, you know, this is the kind of thing where you say, okay, well, I got an A plus. Well, what's higher than an A plus, right? Like, there's always a striving yeah. mm -hmm. for more and more and more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some of the common schemas that show up in someone who has borderline personality disorder would, would be something like emotional deprivation, where they have a core belief that no one will meet their needs for nurturance, guidance, or empathy. Another one would be abandonment where that they have an entrenched belief that those that they love will leave them or disappear suddenly. Another common scheme is called mistrust and abuse, where people, they would believe that people are only out for themselves or want even worse, want to hurt them or are malevolent. Uh, another common one is called defectiveness, uh, where the person believes that at their, at their core, they're a terrible person. It's only a matter of time before uh, people discover them, that discover that or out them as a terrible person. When these schemas get activated, you know, we usually respond with prototypical mammalian responses like fight, flight, or freeze. That's, you know, that's what have evolution has selected for. Uh, in a, you know, these are in these play out in really interesting ways. So I'll use abandonment just for an example. So for example, when someone's having a fight response to being abandoned, they're saying, it's not true that I'm going to be abandoned. And what they do is they end up acting needy. They might act, you know, text the person incessantly, like, where are you? Where are you coming home? Who are you with? When someone's, oh boy. Yeah, when, when, when someone's having a flight response to their abandonment scheme of being activated, they're, they're, they're going to say, I don't want to know if it's true that I'll be abandoned. And so they might avoid intimate relationships altogether. When someone has a freeze response, they're going to say, it's true that I'll be abandoned. And then what they do is they engage in self-sabotage, right? They might pick, they might only go for people who are in other relationships or date married men or women, uh, right? They pick the exact person who's most likely to abandon them, right? It's a freeze response. They're, they're saying, it's true that this is going to happen. And unfortunately, what you see, and this is so, you know, heartbreaking and, and tragic, uh, you know, as a clinician, when you watch this is that when people engage in one of these fight, flight or freeze responses to their scheme of being activated, what happens is that they're going to generate outcomes in their life that lead to additional support and data that perpetuate this very schema that they might yes. be trying to heal, right? Yes. It's totally self-defeating. Yeah. Right? So for instance, in all of these, the person ends up being abandoned, getting abandoned, yeah. right? Because so, they've picked an unavailable partner or they've texted them so, so much that they, the person is like, I'm done. 
Exactly. Yeah. That's right. So, and, it, and it's, so the, these schemas kind of fight for their lives. They end up sort of, you know, selecting for suites of behavior that, you know, are self-perpetuating. And, and, you know, one last little thing I'll add in here that, you know, there's this notion of schema chemistry, right? The, we're, we tend to be drawn towards romantic partners that activate our schemas. Uh, so, and, and, you know, when people talk about meeting people or, or uh, they're, they're dating someone, oh, they're kind of boring or whatnot. It's usually because there's no schema chemistry. They're not being activated in some way. And in fact, it appears that if you want to be happiest in a relationship, you want to find a partner with a moderate amount of scheme of activation, but not so much that it becomes overwhelming and then you get flooded, right? So in, in what we think as psychologists is that there's some attempt to recreate the conditions from childhood and potentially to leverage those conditions as a second chance at solving those problems. And there's that sort of cutesy saying, but I really like it, like you marry your unfinished business. And <laughs> this, this is equal parts fascinating and um alarming yep (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure there's like more than one person that was like "Hmm." welcome welcome to being a human being (laughs) Uh, yeah fair yeah and and yeah uh i'm just fascinated by all this sorry interrupted you keep going no no problem so you know so from a from a psychologist lens this is the way that i would explain it to a client right and you know so what we would do we would talk about the conditions in their childhood that precipitated the development of these schemas and you know with a lot of compassion and empathy and said hey you know if your if your family was quote unquote crazy you know you you had to develop a really extreme repertoire of coping strategies in order to survive these folks of course, that's the way that you, you know, learn to deal with emotions or conflict or, or abandonment. The key then is understanding that, hey, like, you know, yesterday's solution is today's problem and that, you know, we really need to have a look at what's going to work for you today in your adult life when you have a lot more resources and when you're in a healthy relationship and you're not surrounded by your family 24-7. So that's, that's the so- trick there. So a couple of things, it sounds like part of the work of therapy is to have the client acknowledge these schemas and then work to try to, I guess, not repeat those patterns. Absolutely. Um, yes, absolutely. Is that kind of the kernel of it? And then the second, so I want to pick that up in a second, but is it right to assume then, because the abandonment and attachment issue is so core to BPD, is it often the case that clients have a history where they have had a parent that have left or, um, you know, some other core family member or, you know, is it, is that also a feature in there as a risk factor? Yes. T- typically that's what clients will report about 80% of the time clients with BPD will, uh, report having had, uh, you know, a family history of trauma or a, a dysfunctional yeah. family system, things like that. Right. They, they, they were exposed to really sort of a neglectful family environment or, you know, a, a egregious right. forms of parenting, things like that. Yes. So it's not it, it, like at the extreme, it's like mom or dad left, but it could be everything in the range of neglect. Like you were saying, sometimes it's, it's the case that the child, uh, well, as, when they were a child, they their needs were not met, so they kept having to be louder and louder and louder, um, which led to a, probably a lot of emotional dysregulation because you can't take it out of the home context, right? It, right. Then it goes into the school context and the peer context and the romantic context and so on. And this can be incredibly so, subtle where, you know, we, we tend to think as neglectful parenting as being the most harmful, but you know, what you can often see, if you have a parent that's really anxious, say like a, you know, someone who's sweet as pie, but really anxious, 
you know, what ends up happening is that the, the, the adult may not be able to regulate their, their anxiety. The child gets a sense that, you know, they need to be the good kid for the parent and they, they sort of stuff their own needs. They don't need, they don't learn how to express themselves except for an explodes in anger. So sometimes these effects can be incredibly subtle, right? Like Someone, mm. someone doesn't need to be exposed to sort of frank neglect or, or, you know, the parent mm. being mean or abusive. This can be very subtle and it can be a form of, you know, sort of like unintentional or benign neglect where the, the parent has their own problem that they're dealing with. Right. The child picks up the slack for them. And in the course of doing so, it learns how to neglect themselves and, and does not learn how to regulate their own emotions or, or, or label their emotions. As parents, we are all trying to cope with our own traumas and, and not having to instill them on our own children. Absolutely. I think it's like, yeah, a core piece of parenting is to understand where your emotional reactions come from and, and why they exist and to be able to reflect on why they come around and then so that you're not perpetuating these kinds of spaces. That's such um, a great point. That's absolutely the case, especially yeah. shame, right? You know, we, yeah. we, we tend to download, oh, download our own shame onto our children, you know, because it's unresolved and it's so ugly and we don't want to look at it. So even if people worked on that alone, you know, it, it, it would, yeah. it would clean up the parenting experience dramatically. I don't know if you're, if you know, Christopher Canning, he's a, he's a fantastic human. He's, he's worked in at the mental health commission of Canada, um, really talks a lot about shame in his public work and, and, um, just the, that, that perpetuation of how we shame is such a core part of being a child. Um, and a lot of what, what happens is that when we experience like sadness or anger, we get told, stop being angry, stop being sad. And we're, and we learn essentially that it's not okay to express those emotions. Yes. And then how that manifests in adulthood is all kind like the whole gamut, right. Of, of maladaptive coping. Um, but yeah, anyway, we're, we're going to further afield, but yes, shame, man, we could do a whole episode on that. Let's, sure let's could. do that. Okay. So back to BPD, I think you've kind of brought it up and I, and I really want to take that and, and end with it is how it is treated. And um, of course, I think this is a, is a condition that is successfully treated in therapy. It's not something that um, taking a pill will help. Um, and I'm, I'm really curious to know what are the strategies that you might use? No, for sure. That's that's a really, really important question. And yes, there is this perception that sometimes clients with borderline are quote unquote hopeless, right? Like they're, they're, they're hopeless cases. And you know, to be, I think to have sort of an intellectual integrity, integrity around it, you know, clients with borderline personality disorder can represent uh, tougher clinical presentations, right? Uh, they, they, you can get some really entrenched patterns that are, are difficult to uh, to treat. And in addition, I should also mention that the therapeutic relationship can also be a challenge to manage, right? And again, as a clinician, your job is to not take the behaviors that you see personally, is to understand and be always conceptualizing the place that they're coming from. And in fact, I would suggest that a lot of the therapeutic benefit of of therapy comes from that therapeutic relationship, right? Where in schema therapy, we talk about it as called, it's quite literally called limited reparenting, where you're going back and you're redoing the attachment style, you're, you're rejigging it, reformulating it and modeling healthy behaviors for the person, you know, so that they can attach to somebody in a way that's healthy and has boundaries 
not in a way that is boundaryless and, and, and chaotic. I mean, one of the very, very interesting things, and I hope it's okay if I sprinkle in some of these things because I think they're fascinating. One of the interesting things about working with clients with borderline personality disorder is that they will often test you at first uh, you know, to see if your boundaries are intact because they don't feel safe. Uh, if your boundaries aren't there. So for instance, if I, you know, say I'm supposed to end the session at 11 a.m. and I let it run till 11.20, that might really distress the client, right? Because they're like, oh my God, like, you know, Dr. Kelly, if, if, if he can't control the time, then, then that means I'm in charge mm. of it and I don't want to be in charge of it, right? What, who is this guy, mm. right? So like ending on time, billing for missed sessions, like, you know, adhering to my policies, they're subtle things, but they communicate the message that I'm safe and that mm. I'm trustworthy and that they can take a leap of faith, faith with me, be vulnerable and work on that attachment uh, injury that has been so pervasive in their interpersonal style. So, uh, sorry, I had to kind of go to Montreal to get to Toronto, even just to start, even just to start to talk about the therapy, but I think it's really interesting. I'm going to pause there and just interject here because I think that is a really important point, particularly as a university professor who might deal with, or might have students who have borderline personality disorder, we talk about the importance of boundaries. And I think that what you're saying is brilliant because what it says is when we are boundaried with our students uh, in ways that say, okay, I, I can't be here talking to you now for an hour about your about what's going on in your life. That's not my role. Here, let me refer you to somebody on campus who can support you in that way. It, it is not only healthy for the client or for you, it's healthy for the client, for the student. It's saying, I'm going to put up, I'm going to have boundaries. And that means that we're in a safe space because I'm, I'm, I'm allowing for that boundary to happen. Exactly. Is that, is that kind of the, what you were saying with like being on time and ensuring that they're following through with certain protocols and Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and there's tests galore, right? Like they, like, like anyone, most humans do not like boundaries initially, right? But ultimately realize that boundaries are necessary. I mean, I think children mm-hmm. are a great example. Uh, a big parenting fail is when, you know, they let the children be in charge and ch- kids, believe it or not, do not want to be in charge. They want to know that the adult who's in charge of their care knows what they're doing, is going to put boundaries and going to say it's time for bed. They do not want to be deciding their own bedtime, things, things of that nature, right? So I'm also not advocating, you know, dracon- <laughs> draconian oppressive no. measures either, right? Yeah. Th- these things yeah. can always be negotiated, always be collaborative, but you know, leadership matters in these relationships and for people to feel safe, they need to know that they're, they are, that the, that the relationships are defined by, uh, boundaries. And again, I, I could talk forever about therapy, but you know, with, uh, with trauma clients, you know, one of, the, one of the things that you, you know, want to avoid saying typically would be things like, you know, trust me, right? Because mm. often trust me was a prelude to a very bad thing about to happen. Mm. Right. Mm, so like, again, like mm-hmm. you know, the relationship in therapy is, is, is incredibly rich and important and difficult to navigate. But man, uh, when you get it right, that's where a lot of amazing stuff happens. So long story short, yes, that's absolutely the strategy. You know, boundaries are always a great idea in every relationship. And especially when someone's distressed or struggling, boundaries are even more important. So that's a time to reinforce boundaries, not to loosen them, in my opinion. Thank you for that. All right. So g- moving forward, um, do you want to talk more about the therapeutic yes, yes, approach for sure. and, and picking up on the schema framework, I think, is probably where you were going to go. Exactly. Yeah. So I, again, I just wanted to mention the, the the relationship because, again, the schema model really does, does draw attention to the relationship. Uh, specifically, but again, like, you know, we talked about before the, the, the first, 
you know, thing you want to do in schema therapy is to help clients understand the presence of these schemas and, and understand why they haven't happened, develop that compassionate narrative that we talked about where they acknowledge the presence of the schemas, how the schemas actually help them, how they saved the day. You know, they, they kept them alive. Mm. They, they, they got them through. They were essential tools for surviving the family, but they don't need them anymore. They, they now have other options. Um, you know, one of the tough things about schema therapy is because of that, the perpetuating nature of schemas, you know, your adult clients will often discover that many of the relationships that they are currently engaged in are perpetuating their schemas, right? This could be their central romantic relationship. It could be a marriage. It could be, you know, a relationship with a best friend, or it could be, you know, with coworkers, they'll discover like, oh my, you know, these relationships are not healthy for me. So there's almost kind of an informed consent aspect of schema therapy. It's like, hey, you know, this may turn your life upside down, but it's all for the greater good. So I think clients need to, to know this. You know, often, you know, one, just one little nugget here, often clients with borderline personality disorder will often end up partnering up with clients with narcissistic traits because they fit together like a lock and key. Who better to, yes. So who, who better to abandon you? Who better to denigrate you? Who better to emotionally deprive you? Who better to reinforce your defectiveness than someone who's narcissistic, right? So you often see these things go together. So client, and it's hard to get progress therapeutically because, you know, you no person is an island. So you're trying to do therapy with this, you know, with this, with your client who's working really hard and yet they're entrenched in this relationship that is, you know, working essentially to undo everything that you're trying to do in the therapy session. Right. So, you know, what we, yes, tell me about it. You know, so what we get clients to do is to start to test out their core beliefs, maybe just on paper, right? We might use a tool like a thought record or I'll use my whiteboard more typically, you know, Mm. where we build a case for challenging, Hey, like, you know, we're taking these core beliefs as canonical or, or, or as, as like the gospel truth. Is that really true? How would we know what's the evidence for and against? And then what we do is we build a case towards progressing onto behavioral experiments where we get the person to go out and try and do things differently. And so it really with the, an eye to breaking that pattern of perpetuation that is keeping the hurt and the pain uh, going. Uh, you know, often we, you know, clients need to learn how to tolerate the distress of their schemas being activated as they do that work. So we started in a graded fashion and we, you know, we start with very easy uh, kinds of experience and then we build up to more complicated ones. Yeah. Cause that's gotta be so hard, it's, right? It, it's like so you said, hard. It's, it's, it's that distress tolerance. Um, and interesting, that's another thing that we're seeing, observing across the university is, is this lower threshold for distress, distress tolerance amongst our students. So um, I can only imagine because I, I work with them to try to tolerate the stress of, of studying and exams. And, and it can be really difficult. Like students are very, you know, it's stressful. Sure is. So I can only un- understand like when it comes to interpersonal relationships, right? Which, you know, are at the core of, of our humanity. Most people want to be partnered. Most people want friends, you know, with, with obviously some extremes of folks that are happy to be aromantic, asexual and, and introverted. And, uh, but most of us need some social interaction. So I can only imagine if, you know, if you are starting dating a, a new dude and, uh, they haven't texted you back in an hour, like to resist that impulse to be like, check in, check in, check in. Right. Yes. Um, I can imagine that that's, 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 yeah. The beauty of therapy is to help 
people go through that space. Exactly. We can help the client to structure those changes in a way that's really supported and with a lot of, again, like psychoeducation uh, behind it. You know, I think there was a real error made in the parenting paradigm where self-esteem was king, right? It was like self-esteem this, self-esteem that. Yeah. And, and yes. really what where the where the secret sauce is, is an impulse control. Because by, reg, <laughs> why, by regulating impulses, you're able to create outcomes in your life that precipitate self-esteem. Like, so you, it, it's earned. So this is, you know, we see this with a lot of younger clients where, you know, they've been, they've been told they're, they're this, they're that, like, they're, they're great this, they're great at that, but they know that it's sort of a straw dog, right? Like it doesn't really hinge on any sort of accomplishment. So it's incredibly unnerving and anxiety provoking, right? I've been told this X, Y, or Z, I have to live up to this, you know, but yet I don't believe the hype because I don't see it. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. when I have younger clients and to the students out there, you know, what you want to do is to accumulate a track record of small accomplishments that you can really get behind and really believe in that build a sense of self that's built on something real and not what somebody told you, right? Because they had to, mm-hmm. or they, they, they wanted to. So just as a, a quick aside there, um, there was another kind of treatment for borderline. I wanted to speak to real quickly if that's okay, Kim. Mm-hmm. Please do. So it's called dialectical behavior therapy or DBT and DBT provides uh, clients with new skills to manage painful emotions and decrease conflict in relationships. And DBT is really built on four pillars, right? So mindfulness, which is focusing on improving an individual's ability to accept and be present in the moment. Uh, distress tolerance, which, which we've just made a little bit of noise about that's geared towards increasing a person's tolerance of negative emotions rather than trying to escape from it. Um, emotion regulation, where we talk about managing and changing intense emotions that are causing a person's uh, problem in the the person's life and then interpersonal effectiveness, right? So, uh, dealing, learning how to become assertive, uh, maintaining self-respect and dignity and strengthening relationships, all great skills, all great Mm. skills to have. And, you know, typically with the delivery of DBT, I think this is just important for people to know it's typically done in a group setting. Uh, it's very much skills based. So it's more like attending a class than it is like a therapy group. And what we, the typical recommendation is that people do the group twice and usually the group lasts about six months. So you would do one six month stint and then you do a second six month stint because this is hard work and it, you know, it's like, Hmm. you know, it's like a lifestyle change and you know, it takes time in order to get those, you know, from a neuroplasticity perspective, right? It takes time for those changes to be engendered. And oftentimes we also recommend once, uh, once weekly individual therapy on top of that. So, you know, borderline personality disorder can be treated effectively, but you know, the devotion, investment. And, and exactly the investment and the resources that it takes the client to realize the outcome that they want can be, you know, can be extremely large. And man, my hat's off to all, all of our clients that take on this challenge. Uh, they're so mm-hmm. brave and courageous for doing this. And, you know, uh, it's, it's hard work, but it can really, really be effective. Yeah. And, and let me also then plug, we, we obviously need to support, um, we need policies in place to support mental health where we have resources devoted to access of care, right? Because I, I hear time and again, you know, again, I, I, I talk to a lot of students, I talk to folks that are from more marginalized populations that this stuff is expensive, and some of it is not covered by OHIP and some of it is not covered by insurance. Um, and to, to be well in our society, we have to often overcome multiple barriers 
to access services and care. And one of them is the financial barrier. Um, so I think this the, the work you do is amazing and brilliant and, and can and contributes to the wellness of our of our community. Um, and I just wish it was a bit more accessible. So Oh, you're you're preaching to the choir, That's you know, and, and as a as a practice, we're really trying to engage in discussions with the people who do control the financial aspect of the resources in order to enlighten them about the business case for this because there's a massive business case for pouring more resources into it and, and you know that it's a, it's a whole other podcast but even mm-hmm. just the simple fact that you know a diagnosis of borderline borderline personality disorder makes every single physical diagnosis worse and it, and it predicts much greater use of, of hospital resources and, mm-hmm. and and things like that so you know it's it's not that oh it would be a nice thing to do like it, that's true but it would also make tremendous sense financially to get out in front of this and to adequately uh, resource and then even getting further back, you know, supporting families, supporting parents, you know, in helping mm-hmm. to remove some of the environmental conditions that do precipitate these personality yes. difficulties, right? So, yes, yes we want to get things prevention, early, prevention where there's mm-hmm. a lot of neuroplasticity and that prefrontal cortex is still developing. We want to get in there as early as possible. So I'll get mm-hmm. off my soapbox, but, you know, I really feel strongly about this. <laughs> yeah, I think we're both on that soapbox together because <laughs> I'm also about education and outreach, right? And I think it's really important to provide this kind of information to the general public. And that's partly why both both of us um, do the po- these podcasts, I think, because we are committed and passionate about how to provide this information to the general public in a way that's tangible and people can make um, educated decisions and and access services and care and be better and well. So on that note, um, thank you so much for this conversation, Dr. Kelly. I really appreciate it and I have learned a great deal and I'm sure our listeners can say the same. So could you then provide uh, for everybody else how to find your podcast thoughts on record? Yes. So, uh, it's hosted on a uh, provider called Buzzsprout and it's got a sort of a long URL. The uh, best way mm. to find the podcast is, uh, on uh, Apple podcasts, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, anywhere where you would access your podcast is available. Again, it's called thoughts on record, uh, podcast of the Ottawa Institute of cognitive behavioral therapy, and uh, it should be pretty, pretty easy to find. Fantastic. And we will include those links on our website as promised. Thanks again, Dr. Kelly. No problem. Thanks so much for, for having me here and uh, speaking about this really, really important topic. Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and made possible in part by mitochondria for giving our neurons the energy to make sense of themselves. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as it will help make our podcast more visible to potential listeners. Music is Plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. Music